would you take your Bibles and turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 2 through 6. Last week we were introduced to this prophet Zephaniah and saw the relevance of reading a minor prophet even today, and the relevance to our society. And we particularly saw two important things, and the first is that reform and change happens through God's Word, and that God is preserving His people. And this morning, as we begin to get into the actual bulk of what Zephaniah says, we're going to see some repeated themes, and that is the warning of a coming judgment, and specifically this warning that Zephaniah gives of the coming day of the Lord. And if we look at those to whom he is speaking, it's very informative. There's basically three groups that are addressed in Zephaniah. And we want to see these three groups because there are three realms of government that are in existence that God has ordained to be in existence. And that is the family, that is the church, and that is the civil magistrate or the civic government. Those are the three institutions that God has put in place. And all three of those are ordered to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You look at the family, you look at the home, and it is, a, it is to be designed under the lordship of Christ. And God has put play in place in the family structure. He has charged men to lead their families and to wives to be the supporting role to the men in leading their families to know and obey the Lord. Christ has put in place governments, as Romans 13, has, we have seen before, are also under the lordship of Christ, and that they are to be, actually the word says, deacons of Christ, servants of Christ. And then we look at the other realm of government structure, and that is the church itself. And the church is under the lordship of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. And in the church, he has placed men to be elders over that church and members of that church working together. Now, there's a lot of overlap in those three realms. But what we see is when we look back to Judah And when we specifically look back to Jerusalem, we see a corrupt civic realm, we see a corrupt family realm, and we see a corrupt religious realm. And that is the the, those are the people that Zephaniah's message is going to. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound relevant to our present structure that there's a breakdown in the family, that there has been a breakdown in the the rulers over us, and that in many ways we have seen a downgrade within the church itself? And so this message, it was for those inhabitants of Judah, but as we will see, it's for us today as well. So let us hear the Word of God. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. This is the Word of God. And may He bless the reading of it. As you read this, you read primarily a message of doom. 
a message of warning of a coming judgment upon Judah. But we also see that there's a coming judgment that is universal in its scope. And so I want us to look at these these few verses here this morning and see it break down in two sections. There's a universal judgment that God warns of, but then he gives what I would like to call a targeted judgment where he addresses specifically Judah. Uh, Judah, as you know, is the tribe from which the Messiah would come. And so it's significant that he targets Judah specifically. But he begins with this warning of a universal judgment. You'll see this in verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything. That makes it pretty clear. But if we missed what everything he means, he goes on and qualifies it by, from the face of the earth declares the Lord, I will sweep them away. And I want us to notice this, is this is speaking of one final judgment. What the Bible teaches us is there is one judgment that is coming. Now, there are some systems of theology that that like to put forth that there's two judgments. That cannot be maintained biblically. There is one coming judgment that is going to take place. We see that so clearly here. I just want to focus in on the word sweep. I will utterly sweep away. And then you'll notice in verse 3, I will sweep away. And then again, I will sweep away. That word is normally translated gather up. And it's the idea and the reason why it's translated sweep away, it's as to sweep up everything into one bundle. That's the picture. So you can imagine if you have uh, ever done any sweeping, which I'm assuming we've all swept something, the whole idea is to sweep a floor to get everything into one pile to gather it all up. Now, what the picture of is in this idea of sweeping here, when he the promise of I will sweep away, it is the gathering up or the sweeping up for a judicial hearing. What is a judicial hearing? It's a judgment that's going to come. In fact, this is exactly how it's used in chapter 3 and verse 8. Let me read that for you. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. There it is. It is to gather them up. For what purpose? To pour out my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And so... It is this idea of a one moment sweeping up of all people on the earth. Now why is that important to note? It is because there is coming one judgment that all will face. And now you notice what the language is here. I will gather up, I will sweep up. You'll notice he later uses the language of I will cut off. It's agricultural language. It's agricultural language, and this should be familiar to us. And what most commentators think is that Zephaniah prophesied after the Feast of Booths when the harvest had been concluded. One commentator says this, allowing the grape and olive harvest to provide a context for his message, which stressed the end of one era and the beginning of another. Now, we live in an agricultural community, so we can relate to this. One of our cherry farms here in in this town, I went and visited them, and they have this machine. And these cherries will go on this belt before a camera, 
and the camera's taking pictures, and I forget how many different pictures of each cherry is taken, and it's measuring the size of it. It's, it's an amazing process, and it discards the ones that are not the exact size, but the whole point is, is there is this one harvest that go, of cherries that goes before this camera, and the ones that aren't the right size are cast away, and those that are, are kept for uses of benefit. That's the picture here. Is this gathering up and there's going to be this casting away. So what Zephaniah is prophesying is one universal and final judgment. And in one sense, when he speaks of this judgment and this destruction, something we want to understand about Old Testament prophecy is there is an initial fulfillment of that prophecy often. And that will happen in the destruction of Babylon that will come. And the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah, that is going to be uh, coming. But it doesn't find its fulfillment in those things. And so this is a poetic way of warning of some impending doom that they will face, but we have to see it in the grand scheme that it will take place in one final judgment. And so there's two things that we want to see from this. There's one in gathering, judgment is one event, and it's universal in scope. Now, by the way, this type of language of final judgment and agriculture isn't just something we find in the minor prophets. You think about the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this of Christ. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's the imagery that John the Baptist is using when he speaks of this one final universal judgment? Is that of bringing in the harvest and separating the wheat from the chaff. He sees this as one event that's coming up in chapter 12 again. You see in verse 36... This is Jesus speaking. I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And by the way, Jesus places this in the context of a tree is known by its fruit. He's speaking of a one final universal judgment. Now you can look in Romans, in chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 2, in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will remember to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. When we read these texts, how many judgments do we see? One. And it is universal in its scope. So we see this not only in the Old Testament, but we also see it in the New Testament often couched in that same language. Many believe that when Jesus used metaphorical language of agriculture, he was looking back to Zephaniah and using that same language. You think of this fact on that thing that when Jesus or when Zephaniah said, he will sweep away, he will gather up everything. What does Paul say of the Lord Jesus? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when every tongue will confess, and every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so when we read these words, this gathering up, everything from the face of the earth, it is this picture of a gathering up, a sweeping up at the end of a harvest. And at the end of the harvest, then once that harvest has been taken care of, you have entered into a new age. The Bible gives us two ages, the age that is and the age that is to come. And the separating point is that final judgment. And that's a day that everyone will face. Now notice in verse 3, the universal language here of reversal. And I want to explain this, but look at verse 3. I will sweep away man and beast, I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now just in your mind for a second, go back to the creation account. Go back to the creation account in your mind when God brings forth. When is man created? Man is created on the sixth day. Prior to man being created, you have the birds of the air and the fish of the sea being created. But notice here, the order is backwards. Man and beast. Then it's next mentioned birds of the heavens and fish of the sea. The order's reversed. Why is that? That's significant. Man was created last. Man was given dominion as the federal head of creation. In other words, in the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and brought him forth, he said, this is your garden. You are to be the king of this garden. You are to take dominion over this garden. You are to rule over this garden. You are to tend for this garden. You are to be fruitful, and you are to multiply. This is your dominion, Adam. Man was given responsibility for the creation. And so he's mentioned here first as the first of receiving judgment because he has forsaken, he has abrogated his responsibility. Notice what he says, I will cut off mankind. That's that imagery, harvest imagery that man is going to be cut off because he has abrogated what he has been called to do. And why is that? It's because of sin. Now you'll notice what it says in verse 3. He's cutting off the rubble with the wicked. And this is so important that we catch that. It's sometimes translated stumbling blocks. That he will sweep away... He will cut off the stumbling blocks. And there's two connotations that come with stumbling blocks. The first, which would have been the most immediate application of this, would have been that of idolatry. Those things that tempt people. The false gods um, of the people at that time. Now you might be looking at this and you say... Wait, hold on. God had set aside Judah. He had set aside Israel and given them the law, but those other nations did not know God, so maybe they should not be held responsible. Today the argument goes something like this. What about the innocent guy, and you name the far-off country? The problem with that innocent guy is there is no such thing. There's never been an innocent guy, and the only one that there was, we hung on a cross. Man is without excuse. Romans 1.18 tells us that man knows there is a God, and he suppresses the truth of God. 
Even that one that may have never even heard the word of God in his heart, the law of God is written on his heart. And the fact that every civilization that has ever existed worships proves to us and shows to us that very truth of Romans chapter 1. That there is not anyone that can say, I did not know. Even if the word of God has not been revealed to them, they are still accountable. And in the garden, man was given this dominion to be fruitful, to multiply. That command did not stop with Adam. You and I are called to be image bearers. All people are born in the image of God. And we said that to start this service off this morning, and we all said amen to it, whether vocally or in our hearts. And we are called to be fruitful and to multiply. But what has happened with that command and what man has done in abrogating his role is this command has been rejected. I don't have to teach you or be a biologist to tell you that there are certain actions that will not produce fruit. It doesn't take a biologist to figure that out. What man has done with what God has given us in his kindness, in his common grace, has perverted it. The most basic element of what it means and most basic responsibility that has been given to us has become a means of perversion, not only during Zephaniah's time, but during our time today as well. Will man be held responsible for rejecting God's kindness? Yes. Absolutely. And there's a second connotation, though, that we need to see here of this idea of stumbling blocks, not only idolatry and forsaking, but it is of systems. It is those systems that have rejected the revelation of God will be removed. God will remove the stumbling blocks. Those are social stumbling blocks, those are political stumbling blocks, those are religious institutions that are stumbling blocks that are nothing more than rubble, there will be destroyed. What human institution is unaffected by sin? My friends, even, even a church that's faithful to the Word of God is not unaffected by sin. You look at all the good churches that Paul planted, and he still has to write letters to him and say, you guys can't get this right? Those letters apply to us? Like, wait, you guys can't get this right? I can't get this right? We see that there's no institution that is unaffected by sin. We think of human governments, again, as Romans 13 makes so clear, that government is to be a servant of the Lord. How's that working out? And so what we see here in this warning, in this, the nature of judgment is to, to come, is not only universal, but it is a complete judgment. It is a complete, thorough judgment that is coming. And what is the difference between this judgment coming and the previous in the Noahic flood? Think about the, the previous judgment in the Noahic flood. The difference here is all will be abolished. In Noah's flood, God preserved family. In Noah's flood, God preserved government. And in Noah's flood, God preserved religious institutions. What do we see here? All of the stumbling blocks are removed. They are swept up. It's more thorough than Noah's judgment, as we saw last week, and that even the fish of the sea. Again, this is is poetic language. One of the things that we, we can get a mistake in in reading minor prophets 
is not recognizing the language as poetic. For instance, this morning, Brother Tom reading from the psalm tells us about being hidden under the wings of the Lord. The Lord doesn't have wings. That's poetic language to give us a picture of a wonderful truth of God. This is giving us a picture of a universal fool judgment that is coming. And the beauty of it is this. Evil will be removed and God's creation will be restored in purity through the purifying fires of judgment. That's the picture. Evil will be removed. Creation will be restored in purity through the purifying fires of judgment. That's the promise that's coming for us. And what a beautiful promise it is. How do we understand the meek shall inherit the earth, as the Lord Jesus says? Is because he's going to purify. This is why we read in Romans chapter 8 that the very creation itself is groaning for that day to be restored. Sometimes we think that when the judgment comes, we're going to become like spiritual bodies, and no, we're going to be given glorious bodies. We're going to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. We are going to be physical as Christ himself is physical. But what will be removed is the stumbling blocks. What will be wiped out is the evil from the world and the sin that is in this world. And so as you read this passage, certainly we know that it is a, a passage that strikes fear into us. And the fact is that when we read of the completeness of it and compare it to Noah's flood, what do we know about Noah's flood? It happened as God said it would happen. And by the way, as science also affirms when we observe our nature affirms a universal catastrophic flood, but we see this as I will, I will, I will, I will four times. God says he's going to do it. God is speaking. So, that this strikes fear into us is clear. And I think that the primary purpose in that is to awaken a people. So that they may avert that, they may look to the Lord. Look for His grace. But there's also something else here that I want us to draw our attention to. When we read of this, does it strike fear into the heart of man? Yes, it should. But it should also, for us that are in Christ, bring us comfort. It should actually bring us peace. Because do we not long for justice? Do we not long for a day when true justice of the Lord Jesus Christ will be instituted? A justice is not in any way corrupted, but is based upon the very holiness of God. Let me ask you, why should Christians bear up under cor- corruption? Do we see corruption in the world? Why do we bear up underneath it? Because we know this day is coming. Why do we find solace in even the most perverse of crimes? Because we know this day is coming. How is it that the Christian can maintain peace in times of extreme distress and tragedy? Because we know this day is coming that Christ will return as judge, that justice will be served, perfectly it will be executed. Yeah, so certainly this is a day that strikes fear. But it's also a day that the Christian has to say, Lord, please bring this day quickly. Look at what we read in Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's in quotations. Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. But look what follows that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Every time we gather for the table, 
Not only are we looking back on what the Lord Jesus has done for us, but every time we come together and partake in the Lord's table, we're looking forward to when He returns. What a day that will be. Not only is it a day that strikes fear into mankind, but it's a day that should soothe our hearts with comfort. Verses 2 and 3 is the warning of a universal. But chapter, or verse 4, 5 through 6, it actually hits a little bit closer home because it's now a targeted judgment on Judah. It's on those groups that would identify with some sort of religious affiliation, and judgment now is thrown at them. By the way, everyone without exception is religious. The Bible tells us there's no such thing as an atheist. There's those that suppress themselves so much, the truth so much, that they actually think in their mind these things. But what is identified here is that of targeting specifically Judah is who is referenced. Now you think about this in verse 1. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, Jerusalem, and the priests are mentioned. It's those who maintain right worship. Judah, the tribe of David, the tribe of the Messiah, God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand against that tribe. Notice what he says. It's those who are worshiping. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. He's speaking to those that gather in the name of the Lord, but worship falsely. In many ways, he's speaking to the entire religious gathering of Judah. Now, I just want to focus in on Judah for a second and and Israel at, at large here. But why is this so significant to us? This is the the nation that God has promised His presence to. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 7 says this, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? That is the beautiful language of God's presence dwelling with His people. That is the very language that we are told of Jesus Christ, that He dwells with His people, that Jesus is walking among His lampstands, that Jesus indwells His people. And this was given specifically to the nation of Israel. Not only did they have God's promised presence, but I want you to look in verse 8. They had His revealed will. And what great nation is there that has His statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Not only did God call a people to Himself, but He gives them a law and says, this is what pleases me. You don't have to guess like the other nations do as to what is pleasing to me. I'm going to tell you. And as I tell you, I'm going to tell you how you may draw close to me as I have drawn close to you. Not only was Judah given this privilege, but they were given the privilege of being the line of the Messiah. And so let that sit in for a while that this judgment is coming against Judah. And three specific sins are mentioned here, but they begin with this, I will stretch out my hand. You think of the importance of Judah. God uses the same language to Pharaoh of Egypt. I will stretch out my hand against them. I will stretch out my hand against the godless nations. I will strike them down. Now he speaks to Judah. I'm going to strike you down. Specifically, because of their worship of Baal. That was a common thorn in the sight of Israel. Baal was the 
fertility god. And he was the biggest threat to Israel because of their dependence upon rain as an agricultural community. We can understand that as an agricultural community, how we need the rain and we need it at specific times. Well, Israel was the same way. Judah was the same way. They depended upon rain. And the other nations, when they needed rain, well, they would just pray to their God, Baal. And you go all the way back to the book of Judges, really from the time of Joshua on, that was their greatest temptation was Baal. And notice what the language says here. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. Now, what is this place? That's likely a reference to the temple courtyard. That's significant. The place where they were to meet with God, where they were to worship God according to His Word, we are told that there, in that place, worship had been perverted. The very place where God was to meet with His people, the people had placed idolatry in the midst of their worship of God. That's amazing. Let me, let me ask you, as we gather, we gather in the name of Christ acknowledging His presence with us. We're, we're called to gather today. We're called to gather in the name of our resurrected Savior. And we recognize His special presence with His church. Yes, we believe in the omnipresence we also recognize there is a special presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with the gathering of the saints. Why it's so important, by the way, that we do gather. Because it's not something that happens in an individual setting as it does in a collective setting of worship that God has instituted. As we gather in the name of Christ for worship, are there idols in our heart that we bring with us? into this place? Are there things that distract us, that take precedence, that take priority from the worship of the one true God? Let us examine our hearts as we read this idea that there was a remnant of Baal in this place. And why does he say remnant? Well, as we mentioned last week, Josiah, king, at this time, there was two reforms under Josiah. There was an initial reform where he removed the high places, and then there was a second reform where he found the Word of God and reformed, their, uh, reformed Judah. This is after Josiah's first reform, where he removes the high places, he removes the false worship. But what does this tell us here? Even when the king does that, there was still false worship. People were still holding Baal in their heart. That's so important to see. Listen carefully. The mere institution of law does not change anyone's heart. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is what changes hearts. And there's a massive movement today that wants to institute God's law as a means of correcting society. Now, we praise God when His law and His righteous law is instituted in society. Amen? But we recognize, as Josiah recognized, it didn't actually change anyone's heart. And what happens when Josiah dies in a foolish battle? What happens to Judah? They go right back to false worship. Why? Because their hearts were not changed. Now, did Judah do what was right? Absolutely. And we want that, but we recognize that does not change anyone's heart. And at this time, not only were there remnants of Baal, but there was the name, it says, of the idolatrous priest will be wiped out. Now, what is an idolatrous priest? It's a non-Levitical priest that is just put into a place that is not from the, the line of Aaron. He, he is just in place there uh, as, as, a, as a false priest that is a, a, a Jewish man 
but decides he wants to be a priest of Baalism. It's an idolatrous priest, so it's a non-Levitical priest. And he says, priest. And so you have this mixture of Levitical priest and idolatrous priest working there together. That even those that held the word of God and those Levitical priests are ignoring it. This is about their worship. And so from the top down, those with whom God had entrusted with the responsibility of leading worship according to the word of God are targeted with God's judgment. Do we think those many places that embrace idolatry with the name church will escape judgment? Let me ask you this question, and let's, let's ponder this together. Does God take worship serious? Have we ever studied the idea of New Testament worship? Worship in the New Testament, we are given five things that are to be part of the worship in the New Testament. Preaching, prayer, reading, singing, and the ordinances of communion and baptism. We're given those five things that are to be part of a worship service. No more and no less. We're given those things. What happened in the Old Testament when someone decided to add or subtract to God's worship? You think of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, when they decided to just be innovative with the worship of God. What happened to them? God struck them dead. We're not free to add or subtract to what God has given us for worship. We're not able to do that. When we do it, add or subtract, we introduce human innovation and pervert what God has told us to do. By the way, this falls on the shoulders of the pastors of the church. This falls on those that are tasked with this assignment. You think of a couple of passages in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's a wake-up call. And notice this passage, too, in Matthew chapter 7. And I know you're familiar with this passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? That is those that are identified with doing specific tasks of the Lord. And they believe they are in relation with him because they say, Lord, Lord, which indicates always a repetition of the name that there's some sort of relationship that has been established. We know you, Lord, but what does the Lord Jesus say to them on that day? Away from you, I never knew you. This is a warning for us today that we do not pervert the worship of God, but that we worship God rightly according to His Word, which assumes this one axiomatic statement. We can't worship God rightly apart from His Word. The next thing they did is they bowed down to the host of heaven, which is the stars. They were worshiping the stars. And the practice was that believing the stars had the power to bring a chaotic chaotic world under control. Why did God create the stars? To proclaim His glory. What did they use them for? Things to worship. This was introduced by Manasseh some 50 years prior to this. Now God is judging him some 50 years later and warning of judgment. Showing God's mercy and patience with the people. They worshipped it said, Milcom which is mixing different religions together, 
because they were also bowing down to Yahweh. Now, who's Milcom? That word is just simply, in Hebrew, it means king. It's likely Moloch, which you have probably heard of Moloch. Moloch was a common god of the Canaanites that is identified. Manasseh also introduced the worship of Moloch. They, they embraced here what we see is both foreign gods and the one true God. And the, the worship of Moloch included child sacrifice. I said this last week, and I don't tire of saying it because we need to hear it. Since the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973, there has been over 63 million babies slaughtered. 63 million. Many of them are those that profess the name of Christ. What is taking place that we see of this warning here? Is this religious hypocrisy? And all of these things, all of these warnings reveal one central truth. The people were using God as a means of getting what they wanted. Specifically, what they wanted was health and they wanted prosperity. But because they did not know God, they invited other gods of the pagan world to help them out. To them, God was nothing more than Baal, or nothing more than the stars, or nothing more than Moloch. They were looking at things temporally. How can I meet my desires right now? What was not in view was eternity. And that's why Zephaniah draws us to this idea of a coming judgment that will enter us into eternity. And now verses 4 through 5 primarily reach and speak to the religious leaders, but verse 6 identifies all inhabitants of Judah. You can think of the family in verse 6. Those who have turned from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is that they have completely abandoned God. They stopped following Yahweh. They have stopped seeking Yahweh. That is, they're not praying to him. The people had deserted their God, the keeper of the covenant. And God addresses two groups in this passage that we have seen this morning. The religious realm and the home. Let's bring this and bridge this context to us right now. Reform must take place in the church and the home, and it begins, as we have seen, with the Word of God. In 1 Peter, we are told these important words. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. That phrase, household of God, is clear reference to the Old Testament temple. God first judged the people from his sanctuary. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is those that were part of the Old Covenant could be a remnant and also be unregenerate, not knowing God. In the New Covenant, all know the Lord. There's no one that is in the new covenant that doesn't know the Lord. There might be people in the visible church that claim the Lord that do not truly know the Lord, but all those in covenant with God know Him. That's the church. The church will not be destroyed. Christ promises that, but it will be refined. It will be purified. And that's what it's speaking of here. But it will not be destroyed because those in Christ have eternal life and are indestructible. But what this is, is this. God removes the dross and He does it through the preaching of His Word. Is that painful at times? Yes. But it means that God is purifying His church. And while judgment is one final event... We see it actually beginning in this present age right now. And what is warned of here in this text in Peter is that there's a harsher punishment for those that reject God. 
He goes on to say, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We must have a laser-like focus on the gospel. That is the means that God uses in changing the heart. It has to begin with us. But there's also another group that has to be reform in the home. You can read the statistics. Look at fatherless homes and how they contribute to poverty and crime. That's a known fact. But what about fathers not leading their family in the knowledge of God? Now think about the language of the Bible. God is called Father. And those who are by adoption in the Lord Jesus Christ are called what? Children. That picture. Why, why that language? Why does God use that language and identify himself and identifying his people? You see, Adam was given dominion to do certain tasks. And men are given dominion to lead the family. And let me just speak very poignantly in the mirror. My greatest priority cannot be that my children are successful and avoid criminality. My greatest priority ought to be that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, reform takes place through the Word of God. That's a warning for us. Families, that's a warning for us. And so let us diligently seek the Lord when we gather and when we depart. But let us also be reminded this warning of a day of judgment that Zephaniah gives is a day that is coming. And judgment has already taken place in Christ and your sins are forgiven. And the Lord Jesus will welcome you home. Or that day is going to be a day of fear where the chaff will be removed. And the way the chaff was removed is they would take a pitchfork, throw the weed up in the air, up on a hill, and the wind would come and blow away the chaff. That day is coming for those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those that do, there comes the security of an indestructible life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us turn to him with the empty hand of faith because he welcomes his people that he is called by name. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that even in a message of impending doom and final judgment, there is mercy, there is grace, and that we see your kindness and that you do give us a warning. Father, I pray for those that may not know the Lord Jesus that they would turn to you now. I pray that, Father, as a people, we would be constantly looking to your word. We pray that you would bring revival in the home, revival in the church, and we would see this spread throughout all society, that all would call upon the name of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ and gather to worship him. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.